good to be here today. I've not been here before. I don't think I've ever been to Fredericksburg before. I do get out of West Virginia <laughs> now and then, uh, but I'm from a, a very small town. Of, has anybody ever here been to Franklin, West Virginia in this, t- in this room? Raise your hand if you've ever been to Franklin. Sort of exactly what I thought. <laughs> How many of you have been to Harrisonburg, Virginia? Yeah, okay, so you go to Harrisonburg and you stay on 33 and go 40 miles west, halfway between Harrisonburg, Virginia and Canaan Valley, Snowshoe, we're this way, right in those mountains. We are a one-stoplight town, literally, and I was born and raised there, so about a town of about 750 people, so love the area. Appreciate and love your pastors, and it is a joy. The only place I'd rather be than here is in my own home church, but it is a joy to be with you. And thanks so much for coming. It's summer. It's vacation time. It's easy to sleep in on Sunday mornings. Thanks for coming, and you all too over here. I'm going to keep going here, and then I'm going to go here. Listen, thanks for coming this morning. I hope this message will bless you. You can't ask me to speak on trusting God in the darkness. Uh, we, we will talk about darkness. Um, if you stay with me, I promise you we will get back out of the darkness at some point in this message. Isaiah 50.10. If you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 50, you can actually put your marker there. We're going to just read one verse. And then I'll probably come back to that a little bit later towards the end. But I want to read one verse. This is going to be a topical message rather than expositing a section of Scripture. It's going to assume some knowledge of Scripture because we're going to jump. We're going to look at different places in Scripture. And I'm going to try not to proof text, but you have to go back and make sure he's just not proof texting something. So I'm going to take some themes from Scripture, but we're going to jump off this one vo- verse. It really encapsulates what I want to talk about today. Uh, look at Isaiah 50, 50, verse 10. The verse says this, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. The, the subject... Ken asked me to speak about today is on battling spiritual doubt. So by necessity, it'll be a topical message. And also this message will include some autobiographical biographical information from my life that I hope will also strengthen and serve you as well. And um, we know that spiritual doubt can have many causes. We can fall into spiritual doubt because we don't pursue God's spiritual disciplines. We don't read his word. We don't pray. And after a while, we're struggling with doubts. But what I want to address today is doubt that comes from uh, or is it a result of intense or prolonged trials? I want to talk about a specific kind of doubt. Doubt that we experience when we go through prolonged or intense trials. And I know in a group this size, I imagine there are some here who fa- have faced significant trials in your life with much greater fortitude and faith than I have. Or you're going through them now, and I know that we can learn much from your lives. I'm also aware that addressing this topic in one message will leave many things unsaid. So that's why you have pastors that can talk with you. Seriously, I'm serious about that. It's a, this is a huge topic. Uh, when I was a younger pastor, my thoughts would have been this. When I'm younger, I can praise the Lord for his goodness in my life. And as I get older, I have more reasons to praise God. So I tell the older folks in my church, I have, you have more reasons to praise God than the younger people. And that is partly, that is true. But what I didn't, that I didn't consider... And I didn't expect was that as you live longer through life, you also have more reasons to have sorrow in life. Life's not only filled with more joys as you get older, it's also filled with more sorrows. And we're going to look at that today. For the Christian, biblical faith ultimately comes down to two fundamental issues. The first issue is this. Is there a God? If I'm going to have faith, I need to know, is there a God? Is there a sovereign God who rules this world? And number two, is that God trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Is this God thoroughly good and personally involved in the world so that I can completely trust him in my life? And Hebrews 1.6 says this, and it hits both areas. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And listen, folks, you can't fake faith. You can't say, I, 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 I maybe. No, you can't fake it. You can't fake faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must, number one, believe that he exists. There's the first point. Is there a God? He must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. So is there a God and is he good? Those are the two elements of Christian or living faith, the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. Now, let me tell you about my personal struggle with doubt and give you some autobiographical uh, information. 
My struggle with doubt began a few years ago, and it revolved around two specific situations that culminated in a particular event. The first situation was this. I am a father with five children, four girls, and one boy. Every two years. All right, 10 years of diapers. Ladies, 10 years of diapers for that. We have five children. They're all grown now. And my first challenge with doubt was I struggled uh, watching my two youngest daughters live unmarried lives through their teens, 20s, and into the 30s now. And they're still not married. One is 31 and one is 35. And that has been very difficult for me as a dad. They're both Christians. They both followed the Lord. They both sought to follow the Lord faithfully in relationships through their teen years and college and beyond. And they remain unmarried. And that's challenging. And that's also not uncommon in the Christian world. Um, but that was my first challenge with doubt. Lord, why are my daughters unmarried? I have two older daughters who are married. I have eight grandchildren. I have my son's married. But these two younger daughters remain unmarried. That was the first thing. The second situation that, that uh, began to, to, to affect me uh, in the area of trusting God was I went through a long, series, a long season. I'm a pastor of a small church. You know everyone in the church when you're a pastor of a small church or your friends and your family. I went through a long season of deaths and funerals in our church and in my family. We, I did nine funerals in 16 months. And they were all families and friends. In one two-week two period, my, my dad and two first cousins passed away. So as my, my dad's dealing, he was 91. So he, among all these people who passed away, he was the only one that was older. There's others that died. Most everyone else died from unexpected causes and earlier in life. My dad died of, of heart failure and cancer. Uh, later in life, he's 91 years old, a wonderful, godly man. But as he is, as he is experiencing, we knew that he was near the end of his life. Then one of my other cousins uh, got cancer. He was a younger man and quickly passed away in just a matter of two months. And then another cousin passed away. So I went through this season of life where there was just funeral after funeral uh, of, of people's deaths, and some of them tragic. And then that culminated, however, in a final situation that really affected my life. It was when my, my youngest sister experienced, uh, had experienced the death of her, her 26-year-old son uh, in, at the end of these, these funerals, these 9 to 16 months. It culminated in that. She was told uh, the news at midnight on Christmas Eve, 2018. So you, I will spare you the details, but the t timing and manner by which she had been told that her youngest son had died was simply horrible. And it also wasn't the first heartbreaking uh, circumstance that had happened and tragedy that had happened in her life. Um, but here's the issue. She's one of the most godly, kind, compassionate people I know. And became a Christian at a young age. If our five kids, I wanted five kids as well. I was the honorary one. She was a kind and gracious and compassionate one. And she prayed for her children faithfully. She lived for the Lord. Um, and when her son passed away in, in, in just a tragic way, she also has no assurance that he's a Christian. So that's what she's experienced. And for me, as you can see, these things happen to other people, but I'm close to all of it. And I'm watching it. Suffering and darkness comes unannounced into our lives. It comes unannounced. Some suffering is acute and instantaneous. Other suffering is chronic and drawn out. And I experienced both of those. We experience sickness. We experience death, loss, family trials, children drifting from the faith, unfulfilled hopes and dreams, seemingly unanswered prayers that we've prayed about for a long time, the, community, the cumulative effects of setbacks, betrayals, and disappointments all take their toll on our faith. Yet this verse says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we trust in the name of the Lord when walking in darkness with no light? How do, can we trust God as sovereign and good when the evidence in our life at the moment communicates that he might be exactly the opposite. How do we trust him? How does one hold on to faith in the darkness? Well, we're going to look at three points in this topic this morning. The first one is this. We're going to look at the stark reality of inexplicable suffering. The stark reality of inexplicable suffering in this world. 
Number two, we're going to look at doubt as a suspension between faith and unbelief. And then three, we're going to look at darkness, faith, and the name of the Lord. And my hope is that, that by the time we get through this, and we're, again, as you can tell, we're, we're, we're going to go down into some darkness. But my hope is that by the end of this message, you will have solid grounds upon which we, you will have faith in the Lord in the dark times of life. And I think Ken was right. Some of you, I imagine, have experienced, experienced it. Some of you, I would imagine, in the days ahead, I'm not trying to put fear in your life. It, we just live in a fallen world. We don't know what the future holds, okay? So I'd like to pray before we start and ask God to help me to serve you with this topic. It's an important topic, so let's pray. Father, I do, do want to serve these folks. Lord, life, we live in the now but not yet. Lord, we live between fallen Adam and your return. And I pray, Lord, that you'll use the words that I share this morning and the words of other men that I quote to heal the hearts of those who maybe are struggling with doubt right now that have experienced just tragedy in their lives. I pray that first of all, and I pray that you'll prepare all of us for the future. Lord, until the day you return, and that's the great news, until the day you return, we might have to face trials in this world. Help me to speak your words and truth, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look at the stark reality of inexplicable suffering. Uh, actually, going through this season, and it was a season of life. Um, for, for, a, for a few years, and God in his kind of celebrity, some quotes and some books, actually, and, and I, Ken has a list of books that, I, that uh, just were helpful for me and also through God's word. Uh, let's talk about the stark reality of inexplicable suffering. In spite of this world has many joys and blessings, and it does. It's not all darkness. There's lots of joys and blessings. There's fireworks coming on July 2nd. Who doesn't love fireworks? Love fireworks. But beyond that, there's joys and blessings in our lives as Christians. God is kind and He is good to us. I don't make it sound like there's all darkness, but in spite of joys and blessings, our world is a dark place. We have to admit that. Our world is a dark place. And we know the reason why. Because ever since the garden, we live in a fallen world. Part of biblical care in the church is to assist one another as we navigate trials of life. So we provide comfort and care. We gather data and diagnose and make connections with God's Word. If there's sin, because we still struggle with the sins, and we recognize there's sin in someone's life, we try to help them to see. Yes, there's, sin brings about consequences, and you can repent and have faith. We remind people that even in suffering, God can use that to work it around for good, and He, can, he disciplines us in our lives that we might share in His holiness, as Hebrews 12 says. We share those things. We discern links. We counsel and we share promises. But what about the suffering that has no clear reason or purpose? What about that kind of suffering? What about the suffering where there's intense pain? And as you look for the reasons or the purpose, it's pretty much inexplicable. The suffering seems fruitless. What about that suffering? Well, that was the reality Job and his friends faced. Let me read to you the first verse from the book of Job. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. Blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. But Job suffered greatly, and neither he nor her friend or his friends were ever told why. You know why. You know some of the reasons. You know what was going on in heaven if you read the book of Job, but they didn't. Never did know it. Job didn't know it. His friends didn't know it. And Job's friends had no category for inexplicable, unexplained suffering. For them, the world was ruled by a sovereign and just God. And suffering, therefore, including Job's, was a matter, had to be a matter of cause and effect. Job's suffering, we're going to look for the cause. And where did they look for that cause? In Job. There had to be something with Job. It's called the retribution. Uh, Eric Orland says it's called the retribution pr- principle, which is, we do believe this in, in part, we reap what we sow. Then he said Job has sowed this terrible suffering. You know about the suffering. Physical, children. I mean, it, it was terrible. They said it must be something in Job. And with that one trick category for suffering, their words became trusty, thrusting swords of accusation. That's all they had. They accuse him of being proud. They accuse him of having unconfessed sin. They accuse him of all kinds of things. And that merely increased the suffering of righteous Job. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I see suffering, my natural inclination is to try to find out why. What is it? I'm trying to find the reason. And for them, they must find a reason for Job's suffering in Job. Because Job's suffering, and this is why we do it, was a threat to him. His suffering 
was a threat to them as they watched it. You see, their worldview was at stake because if God allowed suffering in Job's life without cause or clear explanation, that meant what happened to Job, what? Might happen to them. That's what the fear was. And then how would they trust God who doesn't treat people as they deserve always in this world? Now, I know I'm building a case here and you're starting to have questions going, but you stay with me. How you doing today, Job? Let me tell you how you're doing. You're doing better than you deserve. And that's a lie. He wasn't doing better than he deserved. Christopher Ash wrote in his commentary on Job, because they, were, they would have said, you're doing better than you deserve. Confess your sins and be restored. That's their answer, right? If you just confess your sins, Job, you'll be better. Remember the first verse of Job, the book of Job. He was upright, blameless. All right? We know not perfect, right? But relatively speaking, he's a good man. Christopher Ash writes, Job's friends have grasped that unless God is fair, just and fair, the moral fabric of the universe will disintegrate. And we face the same struggle as well when we go through suffering. I don't know about you, but for me, when I go through suffering, and we should try to understand our suffering, we can sometimes begin to say, well, what if I'd have said this, or what if I'd have done that, or maybe if I'd acted differently here, maybe I'd have done differently there. We all have regrets. We all have things we wonder. I look at my daughters and say, well, maybe if I'd taught this, maybe if I'd have said that, maybe they're going here, maybe they're going there. And we can drive ourselves crazy trying to find the connection between cause and effect. In the book, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, and you know her story, her husband was killed trying to evangelize a, tri a, a, a primitive tribe. Her and his and his four companions were killed. It was huge news across the world when they were killed. In her book, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, and I would encourage you to read that book, she said this, Upon returning to the churches in the U.S. after her husband died, Elizabeth Elliot detested the shallow, God-justifying platitudes of many who sought to comfort her in her suffering. Their answers, like the answers of Job's friends, were a means to prop up and protect their own flimsy faith that couldn't stand the text, the test of inexplicable suffering. Her showing up in their church threatened them because they had to say, they, they were trying to find out the answer. How could God have allowed this to happen to her? A young woman with a two-year-old daughter. How could God have allowed this? So they came up with excuses for God. Well, there may be many people won because of this. Well, how does that make a young widow feel? All their flimsy answers. Because here's what their concern was. Because if this abhorrent suffering could happen to her for no apparent reason, then it could happen to them. That was Elizabeth Elliot's observation. Everybody trying to prop up God. Because they, not because of concern for her, but because if this happened to her and she obeyed God, it could happen to me while I'm obeying God. Then Christopher Ash writes these words, we need to be honest and face the kind of world we live in. Why does God allow these things? Why does he do nothing to put things right? And why, on the other hand, do people who could care less about God and justice, why do people who could care less about God and justice thrive? We've got to be honest about the world. There's people who could care less about God, and they're doing great. The Psalms have that problem, too. If you notice Psalm 73, that's what David said. I, didn't, I about lost my faith because I'm watching these people who don't care about God, and they're doing fine, and I'm suffering. Elizabeth Elliot, talking about all this, just puts it this way. Looking at trying to figure out suffering in the world and God's sovereignty. Here's what she said. I've read somewhere that anyone who is not confused is very badly informed. <laughs> when you think about these things, if you're not confused, you're very badly informed. Here's the truth. At times, God allows intense and inexplicable suffering in the lives of his people. And he has not told us why. He has not told us why. The suffering has nothing to do with sin. The suffering is not directly, directly proportional to the need for spiritual growth. In other words, Job-like suffering is more common than we may think.
Inexplicable suffering brings questions about God's goodness and fairness. That's why we struggle. Which brings doubt into play in our lives. Maybe he's not the God we thought he was. How do I ever get past this wound to really trust him? See, we can still come to church, but deep in our hearts, I don't know if I can trust him. What is this to keep... What is to keep this from happening to me again if you've gone through something. That's something you have to deal with. How do I know this won't happen again? And this deals with faith and doubt. It it brings about doubt. Jeremiah stated the reality this way. The book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 12, 1, he said, You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak to you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? This is Jeremiah. Lord, you're always righteous when I bring a case before you. I know that's the truth. Yet I would speak to you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why isn't it right in this world with your people and with others? That's the issue, right? That is the issue. How do we trust God when it seems like he has allowed this suffering in my life Some suffering I can honestly connect with my own issues. I've sown it. I've sown it, so now I'm reaping it. That's easier for me than saying, but what about this? I don't see why her child. Why her? She prayed. She loved you. She cared for you. Why him? Why that situation? That's the one that's hard. So let's talk about doubt. Doubt is a suspension between faith and unbelief. Deep and prolonged suffering is uniquely challenging for the Christian. Okay? Deep and prolonged suffering is deeply challenging and uniquely challenging for us who are believers. I'm going to tell you why that is. Here's why. We believe God is sovereign, don't we? He is or he wouldn't be God, right? We believe that God is sovereign. We know that everything that comes to us comes through his hands. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. You are much more valued than sparrows. We know everything comes to us through his hand. And the world doesn't have to deal with that. But we do. We do as Christians. That's the issue. Again, Christopher Ash writes, There is a pain for believers that gives suffering a unique sharpness. Suffering is the common experience of the human race, and yet suffering touches the believer with a sharper and uniquely piercing pain. The worshiper truly believes God is sovereign. He or she really believes that the living God is in control of the world. And so when suffering comes, it must be God who ultimately sends it. After all, he is in control, is he not? It is God who is in some sense doing the hurting or allowing the hurting. It's not outside of God's sovereignty. And then he writes this, and yet God is surely just, isn't he? This is the added pain for the believer living in a world of undeserved suffering. For undeserved suffering is a threat to the moral foundation of the universe. Either God is not in control or he is not fair. And that causes the believer deep and sharp perplexity. That's what we struggle with. A couple years ago, I had, an opportunity, I had an opportunity to go to Budapest, Hungary, and go through the ghettos where they took the Jews after the war, after the war, war, after the war was already being won, after the U.S. got on the shores of Normandy and Russia was fighting from the east. They gathered hundreds of thousands of Jews into the ghettos, drowned them in the river, sent them off. God is sovereign. He is just. What about all this? Either God is not in control or he's not fair. That's our perplexity. He says this, there are believers with a clear conscience, no hidden sin, trusting in God for forgiveness and walking in the light with him, and yet who suffer terribly. My sister, that's what she's experienced. It is a problem. But it's important for us to notice that it is a problem only for the believer. The world doesn't believe in a sovereign God. It's just a terrible world. But we, we're dealing with it from a theological perspective. 
from a God-loving perspective. That's our challenge. That's why we struggle with doubt. Let me give you a couple of quotes of people from people that I talked to through this season of life. One person told me, not only did I lose a family member, I lost my best friend, meaning God, that I have leaned on in prayers and hope and promises from his word all these years of suffering. So when this promise and life ended, I didn't only lose that one. I lost the one I was trusting in with all my heart. I felt, so they would say. Another one person said this, what makes it harder is I know too much. In other words, I know God is sovereign. This tragedy had to at least be allowed by him. I know he's sovereign. Another person said this, if a human being did what God has allowed, we'd throw him in prison. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? That's heavy stuff. That's where it gets down and it gets real. And listen, I understand James 1.13. God cannot be tempted by evil. And he tempts no one. But evil's in the world and it's God's, the sovereign God's world. And there's a lot of bad stuff happening. And some of it's happened to you. And some of it's happened to us. How do we keep faith in God in those things? How do we fight doubt? Well, let's talk about what doubt is. First of all, doubt, struggling with doubt is a reality as we live between the resurrection and the con- consummation. We live between Christ's resurrection and his return, and it's still a troubled world. We will struggle at times with doubt when promises have been made but have yet to been, be fulfilled, right? That's where we live. These promises have been made. All of them are yes and amen, but they haven't all been fulfilled yet. So we're still living in Adam's fallen world with the, with the evil one as well, right? We haven't even talked about him. That's, we'll let you do that part. But listen, this stuff comes to evil. It comes from evil. But God is still sovereign. Remember this, and this is a challenge. I love Job's words. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Remember those words? After all of his suffering, he says, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him, meaning God. That was said in chapter 3. Not 13, not 23, and not 33. In other words, he said it initially. I've seen this in people suffer initially. A, I'm putting my trust in God, and then comes a wrestling. And it went on for chapter after chapter. Now, Lava was his friends. He had to wrestle with them, too. But Job is wrestling with God. So he's got this statement, and he wrestles. I do want you to understand this. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. It is not the same. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. You with me? This is an important part. In the book of Jude, in verse 22, after warning against all kinds of evil and against blasphemous and divisive men, Jude has this to say regarding those who have doubt. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on them. Don't correct them. Don't rebuke them because of sin. Have mercy on them. Isn't that encouraging? That's encouraging. Have mercy on those who doubt. So, Struggling with doubt is a reality. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt is not sin. It is a wavering between what we believe about God that in the moment is contradicted by what we are experiencing. Doubt is, back home, have any of you ever been on swinging bridges? In our town, we used to have a big swinging bridge on the river next to our town. There's a pillar here and there's a pillar here. And you, when I was a little kid, I'd walk out on that and it would just swing back and forth. And I was so scared. Listen, that's doubt. There's faith, there's unbelief, and I'm swinging. Because I know what I know about God, but I know what I'm experiencing right now, and it seems the opposite of what I know about God. And I'm struggling with doubt, and it is not sin. Doubt has not come to a conclusion about God. The heart of the doubter is a divided heart. Doubt has reservations. It hangs back. It doesn't know if it can trust God fully because of what it's experiencing. Doubt is a suspension between faith and unbelief. But unlike doubt, unbelief is no longer wavering. The verdict has been decided in unbelief. The debate is over. It is a willful refusal to believe. Unbelief is the consequence of a settled choice. It is a deliberate response to God's truth. To believe is to be of one mind. To disbelieve is to be fully of another. 
So if you're struggling with doubt and the enemy tries to come in and condemn you right now, don't let it condemn you because you're struggling with doubt. You're on, it's, it's, it's not settled, okay? Unbelief is settled. Finally, however, doubt, if not dealt with honestly, will lead to unbelief. And I'll tell you why that is. Doubt is not always fatal, but it is always serious. Doubt, if not answered, will eventually lead away from God into sin and unbelief. You have to deal honestly with your doubts. And that, that's why, we, listen, we'll still go to church when we're having doubts. And that's okay. But we don't want to pretend. Okay? We don't want to, and I'm not saying you should share everything with everyone, but we can get to where we're pretending like we really believe when we're really struggling. When we're really struggling, we need to ask people to pray and to help us. Okay? That's why I'm just saying we can't pretend. Another quote, the special temptation to doubt and suffering comes from the fact that we feel someone should answer for the suffering. But we can't find someone. And if no one is answerable, then ultimately God must be answerable. Must have something to do with God. Then the temptation comes, and this is why doubt is so dangerous. Then the temptation comes to malign God's character. Let me read you some quotes. Now C.S. Lewis got married later in life. I think it was four years after he was married, his wife got cancer and she died. And he loved her deeply. And so he wrote a book called A Grief, a Grief Observed just to, to write out the raw emotion that he was feeling going through all this, the loss of her life. And in that book, here's what he wrote about God and his faith. He says, it's not that I think I am in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is in coming to believe such dreadful things about him. That's the danger through this suffering. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. He said, I don't, I don't fear not believing in God. I just, be, I just fear believing this is what he's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Oz Guinness in his book called God in the Dark, he wrote this, the temptation to doubt does not come in not believing God, but in believing what is not God. That's the temptation. The danger is that we will press judgment too far and our speculation creates such a distorted picture of God that we cannot continue to believe in good faith. We, 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 we make up this God that's a monster. And of course, who's going to believe in a monster? He writes, believing in the wrong thing is always halfway to believing nothing. Our misrepresentations of God are so pathetically inadequate or monstrously hideous that to believe in him any longer is unnecessarily repugnant. That's the danger. That's what happens in suffering. If we aren't careful, we begin to make God into something he's not. So in the end, doubt will either drive us to distort the image of God into a monster we can never trust or shrink him into an image of our own making. Well, God can really do anything about it. That's the other side of it. And then trust God when we shrink him into an image of our own making and a trust in a God who really doesn't exist. Okay? So now, I've taken you to the darkness. It's dark, isn't it? So let's talk about darkness, faith, in the name of the Lord. How can we trust in the name of the Lord in the darkness? Well, for me, in God's kindness, the turning point came when I read a quote someone posted after the tragic death of the 24-year-old daughter. And it comes from the, from the book, God in the Dark. Uh, here's the quote. It's a little bit long, but I want to, want to read it to you. Osginus wrote this. And I hope this will minister to you. If you're going through suffering right now, I pray that this will serve you like it served me. Suffering is the most acute trial that faith can face. And my suffering, again, wasn't my own personal trial. I was watching others. I love go through trials. That's what was so hard for me. I think next to my wife, I can say my sister was my closest female in my life, and is. And she's a wonderful God. And when you hear it, well, he's her sister. He says she's godly. No, this would be the, this would be the testimony of my friends and church members as well. It's 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 unfathomable. Suffering is the most acute trial that faith can face, and the questions it raises are the sharpest, the most insistent, and the most damaging that faith will meet. 
And here's a question. And here's a statement he makes. Can faith bear the pain and still trust God? Suspending judgment and resting in the knowledge that God is there, God is good, and God knows best? Or will the pain be so great that only meaning will make it endurable so that the reason will be pressed further and further and judgments must be made? But if the Christian's faith is to be itself and let God be God at such times, it must suspend judgment. And we're going to talk about that and say, Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. Okay? When necessary, we must be willing to suspend judgment of God in the face of inexplicable suffering. Now, the Christian faith is not an unreasonable faith. It's a reasonable faith. When we come to Christ, we come both in reason and trust. But there's times in life when we need to suspend reason and trust. And we'll tell you how we do that. In other words, we must reject what one writer says, or I believe he wrote, is key, we must reject keyhole theology. Now, let me tell you what keyhole theology is. My grandmother's house, growing up, and go to stay in her house. They had door locks, but they were the locks, the old-time locks, right? Some of you are older know this. Some of you younger have never seen it. You didn't just turn a knob. You stuck the key in the latch, and you turned it, and you could pull the key out. And in that key, when you pulled the key out, you had a keyhole. And you could look through the keyhole. In the history of this country, there has actually been people who have been prosecuted based on keyhole testimony. People look through the hotel room. And the person who, who did this to that? No, well, we don't know who did it. And the person, one of the maids or the, or the workers there said, I know who did it because I looked through the keyhole and I saw who did it. And people have been convicted on that. However, keyhole theology is dangerous. And we live with keyhole theology. We know, praise God for his revealed word. But when it comes to circumstances in our life, well, let me just read it to you. Keyhole theology is drawing overarching and false conclusions about a whole situation from some partial information we really do see. We really see it. We really are suffering. We really see what's going on in our lives. But when we look through that keyhole, we never see everything. We never see everything. We don't have the whole picture. But once we've seen a little... It is difficult to resist trying to extrapolate the rest about what God is doing and why. That's the danger. That's why we're called to suspend judgment. We must be willing to suspend judgment, recognizing in this situation, we do not know everything as God knows. Job didn't, and neither do we. Our root problem often lays in the fallacy that we think we have enough information to make proper judgments in a situation. But the Bible teaches us that God is not mere man, that we should be like him. Even, as, even at our best, it teaches that we, even at our best, we see through a glass dimly, and we also read that his ways are infinitely higher than our ways. There's so much outside this little keyhole that I don't know about. Okay? Love this quote. We must admit, and we have to admit this, that the known facts are against God. But the known facts are never all the facts. My known facts are never all the facts. I am created. He is creator. I know little. He is omniscient. That's how we can suspend reason in the dark. Now that does not mean we are, no, we are not to try to understand in situations there are, we, there are times we suffer because of our sin. There are other reasons at times we suffer when we, because of other things. But we are, we are to seek to understand. It also doesn't mean that we deny the emotional reality of, of pain and suffering we're experiencing. It, 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 it's real. The circumstances that, that I experience watching others and being near to others, it's, the emotions are real. The, real. the suffering is real. Denying the reality of suffering is not a mark of faith. It's a mark of make-believe. That's what it is. So you don't say it doesn't hurt. You don't say it isn't real. No, you don't say it's not painful. You don't say you don't understand. No, all those things are true. Listen, there's a reason that 30 or 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament in a fallen world. They teach us how to lament what we don't understand before God. And tears and faith can abide together. I've learned that as well. You can have tears in your eyes and trust in your heart at the same time. 
last point is this. Suspending judgment is not irrational, but if we are to suspend judgment, we must know why we trust God. We must know why we trust God enough to suspend judgment now. We've got to have, at least we can't just suspend judgment and say, well, case Ross, Ross, whatever will be, will be. You, know, God, you know God. No, if, if we're going to suspend judgment in this situation, in this, situ- in this horrible issue in my life, if I'm going to suspend judgment regarding God there, I've got to know why I'm able to do that. I've got to know it. Or I can't have real faith. I, mean, I just can't. Now let's look at this quote again. Let him who walks in darkness, there's a reality. Let him who walks in darkness, who cannot see, and he just will make sure you get it with the parallelism, make, let him who walks in darkness and has no not light, and then he says this, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. We can suspend judgment in the darkness because the God we trust in is not just God. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just some abstract God out here. And this was written in the book of Isaiah. And the Isaiah is called the Gospel of the Old Testament. It points to that Savior. If you look at the head of chapter 50, just as a commentary, it'll say, it's about Israel's sin and the servant's obedience. That's what Psalm 50 is about. It's going to contrast Israel's sin and the servant's obedience who's going to come 700 years later. He's not even there yet. Listen, the God we trust, we don't just trust in God. I don't just trust in God in the dark. I trust in God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that says so much to me. The God we believe in is not merely sovereign. He's the Father of our Lord. The truth of his goodness to me is unassailable because of that fact. I don't understand these situations. What he did for me there on the cross is unassailable. That's solid ground. Now look at Psalm 50. And it's interesting before we get to that verse. Let's start in verse 4. He's going to talk about the iniquities of Israel in the first three verses. But then he's going to say this. It's going to be first person. It's going to be the servant of the Lord speaking. And we know who it is. It's pointing further. They didn't know who it was. They knew it was some, somebody coming. But here, look. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. And you say, ah, could that be Jesus he's talking about? Could that be the Lord? Well, you know in the next verse when you read this. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Who was that? That was the Lord. He's looking ahead. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Remember that in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion? But the Lord helps me. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And then he says this. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Listen, when I was in sin, God sent his righteous servant for me and for you. Though he was guiltless, he suffered and died for me. Though suffering in life is real, his inexplicable love has clearly been shown at the cross. And our God being that God on Calvary. Before, while, I was, while you and me were still sinners, right? That's what it says. At just the right moment, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for me to turn to him. He died for me on the cross at a point in time, historical fact, 2,000 years ago, went to the cross, took my guilt upon himself, and took my punishment. That's inexplicable love in the heart of God. Inexplicable. And our God being that God, 
makes all the difference in the dark. Makes all the difference. Listen, I can suspend judgment here in the darkness because God has proven he is infinitely good there in Christ. That trumps this. You with me? The cross trumps all suffering that I experience and don't understand. I have solid ground to trust him in. I can suspend judgment there because he, if you want to say it this way, he suspended judgment over my life to Jesus Christ. Doubts about the Father are silenced by the Son. How can I be sure there's a God and that God is good? His answer satisfactorily one writer writes only in Jesus Christ. Any proof of God's existence or argument in favor of his goodness that ends anywhere else is bound to be inconclusive or wrong. There's only one place to ground your faith, folks. It's not in this world, not what you experience. It's in what God has done for you on the cross in Jesus Christ. It was planned from Adam's fall. Oh, it was planned before Adam's fall. But from chapter 3, Genesis on, we get hints of it all the way forward. And then we who live in this day and age, we know it as a historical fact. So let the unanswered questions about God's goodness and suffering drive you to the place where his goodness to us was most deeply displayed. Job returned to faith towards the end of the book because God displayed his greatness to Job and gave him confidence that he would overcome evil. Job had faith. He never was told why he suffered. He had faith. Listen, we have something much greater than Job. We have the Son of Jesus Christ crucified hanging on the cross saying, forgive them. That's what we have. We have greater reason for, the, for confidence in the Father's goodness, even in the dark. And I want to give you an example of keyhole theology from the crucifixion, in particular the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to close here shortly. Listen, that night when Jesus betrayed and they were in the garden and they came to take him away, all the disciples ran because they had keyhole understanding of what was going on. They all ran. They thought it was over. They were sure it was over. Because he was going to be led away. When he's on the cross, everyone. No, only heaven knew what was going on. And everyone else was looking through a keyhole until he rose from the grave. Folks, we see through a keyhole. But God has opened up his grace and goodness to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. And he has changed our lives forever. Forever. I do another funeral tomorrow. Lady had been a member of our member of our church for forty years, ever since we started, and she was a wonderful lady, and she is a wonderful lady. The last year and a half of her life, she suffered. Well, she suffered for lupus for thirty years, but the last year and a half of her life was spent pretty well in hospitals and nursing homes, most time in the hospital. And I don't know why she suffered as she did. I do not understand. I understand from a general theological perspective that sin is in the world, and we're all fallen, we're all affected by it. But why her? I don't know. But you know what I find? I'm doing more and more as I get older. I just said, and I said to her husband, you know, I don't understand this. I don't understand why this happened. But I just lay that at Jesus' feet. I'll let Jesus take care of that. Because I don't understand that. But I know where she is. And the keyhole would have said, no suffering in this world. But Jesus says, no, a new world. For there will be no suffering forever. That's what I've saved you for. The world to come. When it's all going to be taken away. The inexplicable, only the inexplicable love of God explains and trumps inexplicable suffering, overcomes inexplicable suffering. And he did that through Jesus Christ. And his suffering was inexplicable. His suffering was unimaginable. And because of his suffering, we will not suffer forever. In heaven, there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain. He'll have taken it all away, and it was all done through him. Let that be the ground that helps you to trust God in the dark when there is no light. Trust in the name of God, the name of the Lord. What's the name of the Lord? The disciples would say, call him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who his name is. Writer writes, there are facts in a fallen world that we will never be able to explain, but we must never explain away. Faith, however, can suspend judgment on these questions. For there is no question we cannot leave with God if he is the Father of Jesus Christ. And he is. And we sing these songs. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lead on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand what? All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness hides his, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Ellen Vaughn wrote in the epilogue of Becoming Elizabeth Elliot these words, and she's talking about reading her diaries, because Elizabeth Elliot diaried all the time. From the time she was a young girl, she, 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 uh, she would write, write about her life. And Elizabeth Vaughn was writing, who wrote the book Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, was actually, interestingly enough, she was writing the book her own husband had a brain tumor, cancer of the brain tumor. And she was sitting in emergency rooms at times reading these diaries. Um, she said this, she wrote this at the end of the book, in the epilogue. She said, turning the thin pages of Elizabeth Elliot's journals, I knew the end of that story. She knew what was coming. The young Elizabeth writing did not, she didn't know she's going to marry someone who'd be martyred for the faith, and she'd be left a little two-year-old girl in, in, in South America. She said, the young Elizabeth Elliot did not know what was coming. I wanted to warn her to shout across the decades to prepare for the storm. Get ready. The hurricane is coming. And then she writes, she wanted to write that. She wanted to tell her, she read those diaries. Get ready. You don't know what's coming. As you write these sweet words, you don't know what's coming four years from now. She says, it's mercy that none of us knows what's coming. And I would put a little bit of parentheses. I'd say in this world, because we know what's coming for the next. All right, so we have a hope. But it's mercy that no one knows what's, none of us knows what's coming. But listen to what Elizabeth Elliot wrote in her diaries. Here's what she wrote. She wrote, I belong to God. He is faithful. His words are true. In transformation, the ultimate springtime, already planted, is coming. It's coming. How did she walk through her suffering? She not only had the ground of eternity, and a ground of hope in Jesus Christ as a rock, she also had an eternal hope of tomorrow. Listen to those words. The ultimate springtime. And she not only lost her first husband, she lost two more husbands. Okay? The ultimate springtime already planted is coming. How can I walk in the dark when there is no light? I can do it because God has proven himself faithful to me through Jesus Christ. I need not find any other ground to stand on in the darkest night. Thanks so much.